All right, good morning, everyone. So good to see everybody's faces. Welcome to also those who are watching from home. I'm glad you could join with us. I'm excited to share this message today. It's kind of the capstone message, a summary of my last three messages on the paradigm shift. So I'll try to really bring it all together, uh, everything we're trying to say. And, um, and today is also kind of core membership Sunday, too. So you'll, you'll see these sticking out of the seat in front of you. Um, we'll make sure everybody gets one of these, and we'll take a little time in the service actually to uh, give you some space to fill that out and to be a part of it. Uh, just a couple quick things to communicate before we uh, jump into the message. Um, something we call refresh is beginning this week on Wednesday evenings, kind of a midweek service. Um, it starts at 6.30, uh, not officially, but the doors open at 6.30. Our wonderful youth and youth uh, pastors are going to be making some simple food. Don't expect uh, you know, anything crazy, but uh, just so you, if you want to just come from work, uh, you can get some food here um, from 6.30 to 7. And then at 7 o'clock, we'll do a little worship up here in the sanctuary, and then we will break into two groups. One group will be studying the book of Malachi um, in the sanctuary, and then the other group will be looking at the foundations of the Christian faith. That's called elements class. Um, and so John Michelson will be uh, teaching that. And Chris Waugh will be taking the lead on the refreshed, uh, bringing us through the book of Malachi. So I'm really excited about that. It'll go to about... Uh, in the sanctuary, the Malachi teaching will be short, you know, probably 15, 20 minutes, maybe 25 sometimes, and then we'll spend the remainder of our time till 8 o'clock uh, breaking up into small groups and just to pray and kind of pray through what we, what we heard. Um, so, and then we're going to keep the doors open, uh, to, unless I'm like the last one here or something like that, but till 9 o'clock, but just to give some space for interaction and fellowship uh, so the refresh will probably end at 8, aiming for 8, maybe 8.15, uh, same with the elements class, and then, but we'll leave the doors open till, till about 9, uh, just to let you guys hang out with each other, which is a good thing. So also this Wednesday, March 2nd, is the beginning of Lent, uh, which not everybody does, uh, you know, some think of it as like a Catholic thing or whatever, but it's, I think I've just kind of done it for years. It's a nice tradition. It's about 40 days um, from, not including Sundays, uh, from Wednesday, which is Ash Wednesday, right up to Easter Sunday. But it's a great time to prepare your heart, to go into some deep prayer, to spend some time fasting. Uh, so I just challenge you to, you know, come up with a plan, fast something, some kind of food or whatever. Um, you know, it's nice to kind of do this as a community every year. And we don't put it on you like, okay, you can't eat, you know, for every other day or something. You know, everybody does something different. Um, but it's, I'm just encouraging us all to maybe do something during the, the Lent season. Not only to prepare for Easter, which is really important that we would, um, in a fresh way, understand the work of Jesus. Uh, we'll take really the whole month of April to look at that. 
but also to prepare us, to prepare our hearts um, for this paradigm shift that we're moving into. Uh, so I think for all those reasons and more, it's good to go deep in prayer and in fasting in the next season. So yeah, come on out. Uh, by the way, if you are planning on coming this Wednesday, we do have, uh, we're gonna, we plan on uh, providing childcare. So if, I, I just need to know, okay? So if you're planning on coming Wednesday and you're gonna bring your kids, uh, just let me know so on our end, as a staff, we can, we can kind of prepare for that. You know, I can't have like 85 kids show up and I only have like a handful of workers. I just need to know, but we'll, we'll make it happen. We'll definitely care for the kids. And, um, but just shoot me a little text or email or let me know after service um, that you're going to be coming with your kids and we're happy to uh, take care of them. All right, so... Uh, today, I guess this is part announcement, part intro to the message, but today I'll be, uh, like I said, giving a summary, be giving a summary of everything I've taught on in the last three weeks, and hopefully bring some clarity. I know I kind of shot from the hip and you know said some shocking things and all that, I'm trying to just bring some, some clarity today uh, to things. Um, and we'll also, like I said, establish the 2022 core community. Now, for those who don't know what core is, it's just the, the membership of the church. Now, when you say the word membership, all kinds of things go off in people's heads, and maybe they've had bad experiences. And I've been part of churches that had really strict, harsh, um, unhealthy membership structures. Uh, we don't roll like that. We're just, you know, core membership is not like the all-star team. And then everyone else, you know, or the varsity team, or it's not like that. It's core is basically everyone who is a follower of Jesus uh, who attends this church. Okay, you're part of the core. You're already part of the core. You should be. So it's just more, I guess, formalizing it or just so we know and we can create like email lists and communicate and let you know what's happening with finances. But we don't have some kind of heavy burden, strict you know, extra biblical requirements. Um, we're all accountable to Christ and we're just trying to follow Jesus. And the word of God is, you know, we don't have like a membership handbook with 583 rules. We have the Bible that we're all trying to follow. And that is really what we go by. Um, so we don't police it uh, by being a member. We're not going to like get all over you. Um, there's no special benefits for membership, okay? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but there's just, there's not, you know, other than maybe we have like a monthly uh, gathering to, you know, you get on the inside of like what's happening with the finances. Although, if anybody asked about finances, we would be glad to give them all the reports and show them everything. We were totally transparent about, about that. Um, so it just, like I said, it just kind of helps us to know who's, Who's in this? Who's not in this? You know, so we can move together as a unit. All right? All right. I think this is the start of my message. I don't know. Maybe that was too. Like I said, I want to give a summary of this paradigm shift. And kind of before I say that, I want to give, I guess, a little bit of a, a disclaimer that, because I've said some strong things in 
in the preceding weeks. And I don't want you to think that like we've done everything wrong in the last 20 years. We haven't. Um, or other churches who operate with more traditional Western models are, you know, that God isn't working with them. Of course, he is working with all different kinds of churches, with all different kinds of models. Um, and I think that we have seen God's presence uh, manifested and God has done great things through the years. So we're just talking about going from good to great. Okay, we're just talking about refining how we do things to get closer to God's design uh, so that we can bear as much fruit as possible. You know, if we've, if we've been, uh, you know, we've bared like 30-fold fruit in the last 20 years, we want to aim to bear 100-fold fruit in the next 20 years. Uh, so just, you know, don't misunderstand. I'm saying some strong things and, uh, but this is really just about striving after the fullest expression of who God intended us to be as a, as a church. So I've identified eight aspects of this paradigm shift that I'll touch on each of these briefly today, but I'm going to go in more depth in the next four weeks. So what I'm going to actually do is take two of these each week for the next four weeks and really take you deep into Scripture and, and, and just kind of show you where all this is rooted in the Bible. Because I know it's, it's, some of this is very new. Some of this is, feels kind of shocking. You know, when you've kind of been doing something a certain way for forever, you know. And for me, it's 33 years. So it's like, oh my gosh, what? This is, you know, it takes a while for, you know, to kind of re, rethink things. So I'm, I'm going to just take that time over the next four weeks and, and bring you into the Word. Um, Today more just think today's more of a summary um, of what we're you know what we're talking about. Um, it's funny that amongst pastors and especially church planters, there's a pressure to do something new, uh, to do something different, something innovative. Uh, every pastor feels like they they need to have a special vision for their church. But the truth is that a local church is not like a, a cool new business, uh, some like fresh, you know, fresh new way of doing Mexican food or something that nobody's ever done before. It's, that's not really how it works. The vision for the church of Jesus is already revealed in Scripture. Uh, it doesn't mean there's not a lot of creativity of how we can, you know, kind of play that out. But it's already there. Um, God is the architect. You know, he is the one who has cast vision for his church. Jesus is the head. Um, it's his house. And so our role is to pay attention to what is already revealed in the word of God. Like the Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. All right. First aspect of the paradigm shift. You ready? I'm going to speak fast. And I spent 12 hours yesterday refining this, okay? So just so I could be succinct and so I wouldn't preach all day long. Um, so I think this is pretty tight. I'm going to speak fast. If, you, if it's too fast for you, reach out to me this week because it's, it's all written. And I'd be happy to give you my notes, um, which 
It's just like something you can read, basically. All right, first thing is this. We want to move in this paradigm shift. We want to move from being individualistic to communal. Individualistic to communal. This is kind of big picture. Many of us, including myself, have had a flawed vision of what the fullness of God really means. Because we look at everything through an individualistic kind of Western way of thinking. We have emphasized personal relationship with God, our personal holiness, private communion with Jesus, our personal calling, or some call it our destiny, and our role to win people to Christ in our individual witness. I have thought like that for really a long time. I mean, I've tried to not fully think like that, but it's just, it's kind of how we think about the spiritual life. But the vision for our lives revealed in Scripture is very different. We are not just brought to Christ, but we are baptized into his church. We are instruments in a symphony. We are members of the body, right? We are pieces of broken colored glass that together make a mosaic. We're living stones that are being built together to be a dwelling place of God. We're oddly shaped, especially at Wren, pieces of a puzzle that together are a portrait of Christ. Now, most Christians believe this theologically, but the way that they relate to the church contradicts their belief. To many Christians, the church is nothing more than a place they go to to get inspiration for their individual personal spiritual life. They don't contribute anything except for, you know, maybe a tithe or maybe serve once a month. They hold a loose affiliation to their church, uh, maybe bounce from church to church. They act like they don't really need the church that much. They neither give or receive much from the church. It's a shallow relationship. So we want to move away from this individualistic type of Christian faith and strive to be a community. We want to move away from passive spectating and into deep involvement. We want to move away from being religious consumers and shift to being active participants in the church using our spirit-given gifts. Now, before you think I'm being too critical, I think that Ren is exceptional in, in what I'm saying. I feel like the, the level of involvement and devotion to one another in this community is pretty exceptional, and I am proud of that. Um, but we can go deeper. And I know that what I'm saying here, we're not exempt from this. This applies to us as well. And so we can grow. And so we just want to structure things in a different way to better foster this kind of depth. And that's what we're going to get into. All right, number two, liturgy. Liturgy, another aspect of the paradigm shift. We want to move from pastor-dominated liturgy, like we're doing this morning, to open participation of all members. I've been to all kinds of churches in my life, both Protestant and Catholic. I grew up Catholic. Uh, for 33 years, uh, since age 20, 21, I've served Jesus. I've been a dedicated churchgoer, okay, <laughs> in all the different places I've 
been. I've preached or visited probably at least 100 different churches through the years, uh, pr- probably many more than that. Um, though the styles varied greatly, they all held to a similar liturgy, tightly controlled by the paid or volunteer pastor. It usually goes something like this. You know, a welcome. Hey, everyone, glad you're here. Uh, songs, some songs of worship, uh, a sermon, okay? That's what you're hearing right now. We did some songs. Maybe a prayer, closing prayer or a closing song. And there's variations of this, of course, but churches in the Western world conduct services something like that. 99% of the congregation is passive. They are expected to come, to sit quietly, to receive uh, the content that has been prepared. They might allow a small select few to play music or do a reading, but for the most part, the pastor kind of runs, runs the event. The justification for this model is that the pastors and the priests are the only ones qualified to minister, even though the Bible says we're a kingdom of priests, right? First Peter. But, you know, the pastor and the priest, they're the trained ones. They went to seminary. They went to Bible college. Uh, the idea is that we can't let ordinary Christians minister to people. My gosh, you know, they could say something theologically off. Uh, they may be poor communicators. So the idea is like we must utilize our very best players in the big Sunday game. But this model is not really what we see in the New Testament. When believers gathered, they shared life with one another. They broke bread. They had meals. There was an exchange. When believers gathered uh, around a meal, everyone was able to contribute something. There was spontaneity. Everything wasn't planned out during the week. The Holy Spirit used a variety of members to reveal Christ. You know, maybe one brought a song, another brought an exhortation, a prayer, prophetic word. One brought a testimony, another brought a teaching. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone in the gathering shared an equal amount. You know, some people are just people of few words, right? Some people are quiet. Some people, especially teachers, like me, I, you know, I, can, I can talk for a long time, as you're witnessing right now. But the point is that no one, including the teachers or elders of the church, dominated the gathering. All were free to participate, and it had a huge impact on unbelievers and outsiders. Now, I want to clarify that there are special times when one person speaks to a captive audience Jesus spoke to massive crowds, right? Paul and Peter did this uh, as well at at times. Uh, When Paul visited churches, we know that there was one story, right? It's kind of funny that Paul was, you know, it was a special thing. The apostle Paul, you know, he's here. Okay, let's, and he was preaching and he's preaching so long that some guy fell asleep and fell out of the window. That could happen at Wren. Because we have no screens or anything. If we open the windows, that literally could, that could be in our future. Um, and what happened? He fell out of the window. I think he died, you know, and they all went around. They raised him from the dead. Uh, just That brought a little excitement to the gathering, I'm sure. 
And then it says Paul preached all night long. <laughs> so there, there were times. Paul rented a hall, the Hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, and he trained and taught for two years. And I th- I'm pretty sure he taught all day long. But these are not, in Scripture, regular church gatherings. These were special. Uh, they were evangelistic moments. They were apostolic training times. The regular gathering of local churches were interactive. They were like spiritual potlucks that everyone brought something to. So we want to move away from clergy-dominated gatherings and create space for open participation. It's funny even talking about this as I'm you know, demonstrating how we <laughs> kind of don't want to do things. But you know, we're, this, let's consider this training, all right? Um, training us in a new way of thinking. But we can't shift into this abruptly, all right? There needs to be training and also logistical changes to how we structure everything to make this feasible. But that's the direction that we're heading in. All right, third aspect of the paradigm shift We want to move from big to small gatherings. The average church in America is less than 100 people. But here's the reality. Most pastors don't want to be that small. It seems to be in the modern Christian thinking that bigger is better. All the American churches that are most admired are large in size. Those are the ones that, you know, write the books and preach at different Christian conferences. They have giant churches. Success is equated with buildings, lots of people, and of course, big revenue. Almost all people who plant new churches and start with you know, maybe 10 or 12 people dream of one day being a church of 1,000. Now, it's totally, I'm guilty of this. Uh, that seems to be the unspoken ambition of the modern pastor. We pastors can be not all, but can be very narcissistic uh, because pastors are typically very driven personalities. It's easy uh, for us to fall into uh, building our own empire. You know, that is a tribute to us. But isn't it funny that we don't see any large churches pastored by big personalities in the New Testament? The closest thing we can find to big gatherings is right after the 3,000 were saved, uh, Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church. You know, the believers, it was, you know, just imagine that, going from 120 to 3,000 in one day. Uh, It was like crazy town. Uh, So the believers had several prayer meetings a day at Solomon's Porch, which was basically a part of the temple complex that wasn't exclusive to Jewish males. It was an outdoor space with some covering overlooking the valley. Uh, Jesus taught there, so it was kind of familiar to uh, many of the people. They had prayer meetings three times a day for a season. And, you know, I think it was, this was, it was one of like revival prayer meetings. This was the birth of the church of Jesus. It was kind of a special thing that was happening, and probably not everybody went to every prayer meeting. Obviously, people worked, people were farmers, people were doing whatever. People kind of came and went, and it was just like a unique season of three prayer meetings a day for however long. Eventually, church gatherings were scattered all over the known world and were quite small in size. 
Now, because of our big Western, our Western big church thinking, we tend to interpret the New Testament um, through our, you know, kind of through our Western eyes. When the Bible talks about the church in Ephesus or Philippi or Laodicea or Antioch, we kind of think of, maybe you didn't do this, but I have done this for years. We kind of think of a church space with hundreds or maybe even thousands of people gathered, uh, you know, with a pastor. But churches in the first century mostly gathered in homes, actually for the first three centuries. It's hard to say exactly how many were in a church, depending on how maybe big the house was. You might have 10 or 12 people in one uh, church. You might have had 40 or 50 or maybe even more, 60, 70, if they had kind of a barn or bigger space in their home. But the early church gatherings were relatively small in size. In a place like Jerusalem or Antioch, there were likely thousands of Christians, but gatherings were rarely all together in one place. Exceptions would be maybe when the apostle was coming through and they probably all tried to cram into or maybe met outside or in different places. Now, the reason the early church gatherings were small in size, it was intentional, uh, it allowed for the members to participate. It's kind of common sense that as soon as you get a gathering of 50 or 70 or 100, it, it gets harder and harder the bigger it, it gets um, to interact, to have open participation. I remember when the church, Renaissance Church, was in the beginning stages, the first three years, we, were, uh, we ran from probably about 20 to 30 um, and we met in my home every Friday night for fellowship. Roger remembers those times, right? <laughs> you know, just sharing meals. But even the Sunday service was like, it was like a small group. You know, I, we, I, we would talk. People just interrupt me uh, right in the middle of the sermon. It was great. You know, I would, you know, talk for a little bit. Okay, get, break into small groups and, you know, talk. And it'd be like three small groups or something. It was, it was beautiful. Uh, you know, anybody new in the church was like really connected with easily because, you know, it's only 20 of us, 30 of us. We noticed the new people. Um, there's so many reasons uh, that gatherings benefit in being small. Small gatherings in humble locations, I think, also displayed the kind of kingdom that Jesus was establishing as opposed to the pomp and power of the world. The first century, churches were in living rooms and dining rooms around the hearth, uh, huddled together, maybe meeting outside sometimes or on a fire. Uh, there were no pews, no pulpits, uh, no stages, no sound systems, no lights. It felt more like a family gathering than a production. The environment was warm, relaxed, and intimate. And the smaller size enabled them to live out the one another's more naturally. Now, we aren't a large church at all. I think the biggest our gatherings have gotten through the years was about three to 400 on a Sunday, which is probably about twice what we are now. You know, I think when everybody comes back together and they're comfortable after the pandemic, we'll probably be 150 to 200. Um, but still, it's way too big for open participation. We're not going to get in a in a ginormous 200-person circle. Uh, we couldn't even do that in here anyways, but it would be, you know, it would just be awkward. It would be impossible. 
And that's where the small church initiative comes in that I explained in detail in week two when I talked about reimagining the church. I'll just touch on it here. But once we establish the 2002-2022 core, which we're doing today, we'll start forming small churches of about 15 people in each according to maybe where you live or your mission interests, um, even existing relationships. We're going to work hard and we'll work with you and, you know, to try to, you know, shape these little clusters of 15, uh, 15 people. So we want to move away from the big gatherings dominated by one person and move towards small and interactive. I'll be doing in-depth training for all of the small churches so you don't feel like, oh my gosh, well, I don't even know what we're doing. How, how is this going to work? You know, I have so many questions. We're going to answer all of your questions. We're going to work all of this out. We're going to train. The small churches will meet. We may have some other times as well if we have to. But we're going to aim to meet on Sunday afternoons, 1 o'clock or 4 o'clock or 7 o'clock. We're just kind of going with those times. seems like Sundays, people are pretty free in general. It's kind of a church day. Um, so we'll still meet on Sunday morning for the big gathering. We're not going to stop doing this, but we're going to start doing this smaller church uh, network. So like I said, we'll continue this bigger Sunday morning gathering to give everyone time to adjust to a new small church model. I think right now it's like, oh my gosh, what is this? I don't know. What is this going to look like? I don't think this is going to be good. Some of us think of like house churches and you know, there's a lot of really crazy house church, weird things out there. I mean, there's cults, there's all, just like anything, just like churches that meet in buildings. You get like healthy ones and unhealthy ones, toxic ones, you know, spirit-filled ones. You get the whole gamut. It's the same with smaller church expressions. It's, there's unhealthy ones. There's smaller church expressions that run with a tyrant leader. And, you know, I've been in some of them where there's like a giant pulpit in a living room and everybody's like, you know, lined up in their little pews. And it's like, you might as well just take the big thing and just make it small. It's, you know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about being, you know, being more of a family, interactive. At some point... I really don't know when, we will only do the smaller church gatherings. But before you start thinking you'll never see people in the other small churches, because I know how we get, we get all sad. Oh my gosh, I'm never going to see Dan Wah again. I love Dan. He's my friend. And Hasmik, oh my gosh, they're so nice. Hasmik makes so much good food. I wonder what his small church is like. You know, Maybe I'll send him a text. Send me a picture of Hasmik's display of snacks. Okay, it, you, can, you can visit anybody's small church. There's going to be cross-pollination with mission initiatives. There will be organic gatherings like weddings and birthday parties and other celebrations. We'll have core gatherings all together. Um, think of Wren as a family of small churches. And I'll share a little bit more in a few minutes about, um, you know, I think that Maybe we would continue to do like a larger gathering, everyone together once a month. I'll share a little bit more about that in a minute. Location, next aspect of, and these are kind of connected, these two. Location, next aspect of the paradigm shift. From, we want to move from big, expensive central building to small, preferably free, 
spaces scattered all over. Built into the DNA of most churches that start out is the hope that one day they can grow up and have their very own building. And not just any building, but a really nice, beautiful one. It's true that many churches are modest, but some are just extravagant, decadent even, in just the amount of money that goes into buildings. Enormous financial expense. But the question is like, are they needed? It seems that the first century Christians did very well without big church buildings. They went from 120 people at the start to over a million by 250 AD without church buildings. That's pretty amazing. Besides the fact that the concept of a church building is not found in the New Testament and that large buildings suck up about 25% of all the money churches put in, yeah, my question is, are they, are they even helpful? Given the present reputation of institutional churches in America, I mean, most people repel the idea of even coming into a church building. Church buildings can be designed in so many different ways. I understand that. Some have an inviting vibe. We have tried to go for that. You know, I'm, we're, we're, you know it's, this isn't a living room. Uh, but we, you know, with the lighting and the seating, just couches and different places, you know, we try to make it comfortable. But most church buildings are pretty aesthetically cold. You've, I'm sure, been in many of them. They have sometimes giant, uh, scary front doors, right? I mean, our front door on the space that we met in at the armory was had to be the most intimidating door of any church in Rhode Island. Um, it's right across from Den Den. Just the giant is crazy, you know. But, you know, gargoyles. Yeah, let's put some gargoyles on the church building. That's, that'll say, uh, you're welcome. Nothing says you're welcome like a gargoyle. Um, stained glass that looks beautiful from the inside, but outside it looks kind of scary. It's just dark. Echoey. Pews. Plastic flowers. Fake pillars. Everything is kind of sterile and ordered. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't use it, but it's kind of a, it's not the best fit. And then, of course, you know, we're surrounded by mostly strangers, you know, because it's like hundreds of people maybe, because it's open to the public. But when people think of church buildings, they don't think of words like warm, relaxed, comfortable, intimate, homey, and so on. They might use words like that to describe a home, like Jeff and Julia's home that I've been to a couple of times. is very homey, very comfortable. They might use those words to describe their favorite pub or cafe, but not a church building. Church buildings for a church gathering are like wearing a three-piece suit to a Super Bowl party. You can still enjoy the Super Bowl but it's kind of not the best fit. It's not the best thing to wear. Small, intimate spaces, I think, are a better fit for brothers and sisters in the family of Christ to live out the one another. That said, we don't want to let go of this uh, large building we use 
uh, quite yet. <laughs> you know, we, we want to do it at some point. We're actually um, kind of stuck with it for a while um, since we're, we have a lease. <laughs> I think it's up in like 2025. But we want to just begin to, to think about this. I mean, we like the building. It's been good to us. Um, but here's my thinking. Do we need to spend what I estimate is about a million dollars in the next decade to have this building? And you know we pay cheap rent for 18,000 square feet. We don't even pay $5,000 a month in, the, in a city. That's unheard of because our landlord is another church. So it kind of keeps it all in the kingdom, which is wonderful. But do we need to spend that much money? Isn't there a better way to use over a million dollars? I believe we can be just as fruitful without a big central building, as much as we love it. And we can invest that $1 million into local and global missions. That's exciting to me. And I would challenge, there's nobody in this room that loves buildings as much as me. I am addicted to buildings. I have a disease I like can't ask my wife. I can't even go to another town or new on vacation. I'm like, oh, look at that building. That could be a great church. That could be, I'm always like just, that could be renovated. Oh, we could just blow out the back and look at that parking lot. I love buildings. I love space design. I love the exterior, the whole way you design, uh, you know, the flow of things. I drove our architect crazy more than once in designing the space, you know? I, so I, I, I love spaces. My daughter's studying architecture. You know, we love space design. We talk about it for hours. I'm just saying, do we need a big central building? Is it even useful? Well, like I was saying a few minutes ago, I think that we still would want to gather together um, at least maybe once a month for the bigger, I still see us doing things all together. So if we, let's say we had 10 small churches going, we would still get all together, maybe um, in a rented space. I mean, I know most of the pastors in, in Rhode Island, and I think a lot of them would give us their space and their grass um, to use probably for free or for very little money just to get together all together once a month. Or we could use some other spaces or maybe somebody even has a huge backyard. I don't know. We could be creative, but it depends on the weather. I think that we can still get all together. And I keep having this picture. I've shared it with some of you. Uh, probably in the last five years, I keep seeing this picture in my mind of a box in a field. Uh, maybe that's a simplistic, just kind of a symbol of just a place where I see us all together and kids can be running around freely and not very structured and, you know, worship. And maybe we do something like that once a month, maybe the first Sunday of each month. Um, it's more of a, not 90 minutes, you know, but maybe it's a half a day and we just spend time, share a meal together and just let the kids go crazy and it's safe and, you know, there's no main roads around. I have craved that, especially for the Wren children, uh, you know, for years. And I feel like it's, there's something in the future um, that God is putting together for that. So, all right, let me move on. I'm doing pretty good here. Leadership. Another aspect of this 
paradigm shift. I'll just touch on this. There's much to say. But we want to move from professional, the professional clergy system to more of a family of equals. Travel into the future for a moment and imagine Wren as a family of small churches, you know, 15 to 30 people gathered in, in small spaces. Now, they don't have to be homes. They could be any, you know, it could be a clubhouse. It could be a barn. It could be somebody's business and after hours or they own a warehouse and there's a space there. It doesn't have to be in a cool location. It doesn't need to be visible. It doesn't need a sign, a little bit underground, um, but just kind of picture that for a moment. Each church of 15, 20, 30, they're caring for the members. There will be older, seasoned Christians in each small church that give it stability and guidance, uh, kind of doing some eldering. But no one is burdened with the task of caring for everyone. No one is preparing to preach a 40-minute message uh, every single week. Everyone shares the load. There's no need for a professional paid clergyman. In fact, having someone paid to care for the church often produces kind of a passivity in church members. Everything becomes, you know, the pastor's job because, you know, he, that's what we're paying him for. The fact is that churches in the first century did not have professional pastors or clergy. Sometimes they didn't even have elders though in time, elders were always appointed. Churches were more like small communities of family and friends. No one needed to be paid to run the community. Just like if you had a, a group of family or friends, 15 of you, you know, it's like you wouldn't pay somebody, uh, you know, a full-time salary to, like, manage the community. That would almost be weird, right? It's like everybody just, okay, we can do this. We can handle it. Like, we can figure stuff out. You know, we can make decisions, and we can, we can be a family together. Today, we've created a clergy system by which the paid professional pastors the church. It means the paid pastor cares for everyone, counsels, preaches weekly, teaches Bible studies, leads planning meetings, develops and casts vision, visits the sick, marries, buries, manages staff, assimilates new people, goes after strays, designs the liturgy, oversees the finances, manages the building, fields emails, writes newsletters, attends social events. And of course, you know, we must find time to reach out to all the people in the neighborhood who are lost. We have essentially outsourced the task of caring for one another to the pastor. Now, this happens in varying degrees, of course, but this isn't God's design. It's not good for the church. And I think it's also why many pastors are depressed, discouraged, giving up, even suicidal. The Lord never intended pastors or elders, it's the same word in Greek in the New Testament, to carry this kind of load. While it's hard to find any support in the New Testament for paying pastors or elders a salary, there is, however, a clear idea of apostles or church planters, missionaries, if you want to call them that, being financially sustained. You see teams of apostolic workers, really missionaries, apostle means one sent on a mission. Um, 
But you see teams of apostolic workers who were sent out to plant and water, you know, like Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas or John Mark or um, Timothy, uh, Titus, and many others in the word of God. Their work was to start churches and strengthen churches, but not to settle in the churches as the pastor. They moved around. They stayed with some churches a day, others for weeks. Paul spent two years training the church in Ephesus. So practically, you know, what does this mean for me and for the other people on church staff? Listen, we aren't doing anything abruptly um, since really all of our staff are needed very much needed. I mean, we're kind of understaffed. I mean, we, we handle a lot with, there's two full-time people on staff and about six or seven or eight or whatever it is, um, part, very part-time staff. So we, we kind of squeeze a lot out of our staff. But what I see over time is that church staff, as we know it now, will not be needed to do many of the things that they presently do. So the idea is to shift our function as church staff to being more apostolic servants who do the work of planting and watering the churches. Wren Church would continue to provide financially for all of them. I don't want you to like worry about... I mean, I, I get a salary. <laughs> I'm not looking to... Uh, cut myself out of a job. I want to do this in a way that transitions smoothly for everyone. I also want to, as I mentioned before, I want to do this in a way that other churches might actually follow us. If we do it in a way that just like blows everything up and we like lay off all the staff because, you know, it's not biblical or whatever, and just like put financial strain on people and divide the church up and everybody's, you know, that we don't want to do that. We want to use wisdom and gentleness and do this in a way that we're a shift. We're we're talking about a large shift from one way of doing things to another way of doing things. And so we want to be uh, gentle in the way we do that and do it in a way that other churches could could follow the pattern. Um, But over time, I think the idea is that the you know, the, the, those who are on this apostolic team or missionaries or church planners, whatever we want to call them, um, would begin to raise some support from maybe Wren alumni or people outside the, you know, outside the Wren community, and we could draw less and less money from the, rent, the money that's coming into Wren. So right now, well, that's, that kind of leads to the next point, which is next point of the paradigm shift is stewardship. Um, So we want to move from 90% of church income spent on buildings and staff and programs for church people to giving as much as possible toward local and global mission. We've already taken a step toward this for 2022 uh, by doubling our giving to local and global missions from 12% to 24%. I think it's pretty awesome, and the first month went well. When we release the building, that could double again uh, to about 50%, which I think is awesome to be able to give 50% of everything that comes in to local and global mission. 
And as the church staff gradually shifts to church planting workers and raises money outside of the rent community, we could potentially give 60 or 70 or 80 or 90% of all that comes in to local and global mission, which is where we're moving. That's what we're aiming for. Another way to increase the percentage we give to mission is by growing numerically, of course, and giving more generously. The goal is always collective generosity. As I shared last week, we don't really believe in, in tithing. It's not really a New Testament concept. Um, in fact, you know, I think for people who make a lot of money, tithing is really not that big of a deal. It's not a sacrifice, and maybe it's not even considered generous uh, to Jesus. Remember when the Pharisees came and they were dropping their money in the book? Get big amounts of money. Jesus wasn't impressed at all. Then the widow came along, dropped in two coins, and Jesus said, that is what generosity looks like. She gave out of her poverty all that she had. So really, we want to all work it out between us and God, you know, what what generosity looks like for us. For me, it might, maybe it's 7%, maybe it's 11, maybe it's 17%, maybe it's 22. Everybody's different. We have to kind of ask the Lord, what, what does generosity look like? But our aim is not to get everybody to tithe. Our aim is to be a community that uh, practices a collective generosity. And I think if we continue to strive toward that, which this community is already incredibly generous. Um, It's a small community, and we meet our budget every month, and we're able to give a lot to missions, and it's amazing. Um, So, But anyways, it's more of a continuing to do that for uh, most of us, and maybe for some, it's like stepping up and saying, all right, I'm going to, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's all his money anyways, and so we're just kind of asking him, what he wants to do. All right, I'm going to kind of talk fast. I got two more. I'm going to talk really fast. Okay. (laughs) Mission. We want to move from clergy-led mission to member-driven mission. Since I started the church in 2002, in the summer of 2002, uh, outreaches on Penn Street, really most of the local and global mission initiatives we've done have been birthed in my heart first, you know, they're my ideas, my burdens, my passions. And when I get an idea, you know how it goes. I pitch it to the church, and then I beg everybody to uh, get involved. You know, plug in, play your part. And because you guys are so awesome, you know, like, all right, I can, I'll, I'll help you. I'll, I'll do this. And so, you know, you show up and man the bouncy house or, you know, whatever, make sandwiches. This isn't bad. This is a beautiful thing. And we've done some great things, like the art installations we've done. And uh, beautiful. It's not a bad thing. It's what happens in most churches. The pastor or the outreach pastor comes up with outreach ideas and rallies the church to get on board. Um, We want to move away from that model, however. The Lord has given to each of us the Holy Spirit, and to each he has put burdens on our heart, assignments, if you will. Uh, Your heart may be weeping for the moms who live in the neighborhood where where you live, 20 miles away, Um, you know, and then Pastor Scott's like, oh, we need your help to do this thing down the street. Okay, you know, and so you either just, you know, do it out of obligation to help the pastor because you want to be a good, faithful church member, 
um, or you don't do it and feel kind of guilty. We just want to move away from that. We want to move toward every member in the church doing the mission that God has put into their heart. Now, it might be, you might have several burdens, but I also don't mean by this that I want you to uh, do a solo mission, you know, that every single person has their own special little mission. <laughs> As I've said before, it's good to work in teams. It's good to maybe work with your spouse or work with your whole family could do something to serve people outside the walls of the church together. That would be beautiful. Um, or maybe a handful of you who are friends, you could just kind of join together. So I, I think it would be best if we you know, worked as teams or at least find a partner. Jesus sent them out two by two, right? I think there's something to that. It's encouraging. And we have different giftings. So uh, as, when we work in teams, you know, different people can play different roles. Some are more organized and administrative. Some people are just really outgoing and they're able to just connect with people really well. And some people are just gatherers. And so you kind of need to work in teams to, to really do things um, well. All right, much more. I'm going to talk about that um, in the coming weeks and in our trainings and all that. But let me hit this last one. Planting, church planting, paradigm shift. From costly planting strategy to one that can expand more freely. Now, I am a church planter. I started the church. I'm a cheerleader for local church plants. I believe church plants are the most effective way to advance the kingdom of God. Why have we not planted any churches in 20 years? That's almost kind of crazy, right? I've thought a lot about this question. And I think that the problem is not the lack of desire. I've like wanted to do that from the beginning. Those that have been around from the beginning, you know I've talked about that. So what is the problem? I think the problem is a problem of model. Here's what I mean. Here's the, the present-day model of church planning. First, you have to find someone crazy enough to plant a church, but who is steady and mature. It's hard enough taking a pastoral position in a church, but starting from scratch requires an individual who is entrepreneurial. He needs to be savvy at business and marketing and networking. He needs to be willing to do it, even though most church plants don't really work out. He needs to be willing to barely support his family, at least for many years. I mean, who wants to do this? No one. It's hard to find somebody to do this. Second, this crazy but deeply spiritual person must raise funds for five to 10 years from individuals and churches to support his family and to operate the church. This could be 50, 100,000 a year. 200000 a year. I've seen some church planters well supported, getting a lot of money to plant a church. The average church planter probably needs about a half a million dollars just to get through a five-year effort. Many people and pastors don't really love to support church plants because many of them don't last. Third, if the church planter is fortunate enough to have a nearby home church, then the pastor of that home church must be willing to give away 20 or 30, uh, you know, tithing people. <laughs> you know, let's just be honest. Because most churches are about 100 people and have tight budgets, uh, many pastors are not too excited about, like, giving away all of their best tithers. Oftentimes, church planners start with no one but their spouse and children. This is ridiculously hard. Fourth, the church planner must find a building because you got to have a building, right? 
to meet in on Sundays. And in a city, this is a great challenge and also can be very costly. Many churches rent school auditoriums to begin, which I don't think is great. Vibe, we did that at one point. We've had all kinds of crazy spaces through the years, and some of them are terrible. Remember the one in the Columbus Theater? It's like a 200-seat theater, and sometimes we'd have like 17 people in the crowd, and I'm like up on the stage. It was a little weird. Um, And then, you know, we were having the kids in this front room, and the heat broke, and you could see your breath. (laughs) It was crazy, you know. But these are some of the challenges of, of church planning. Fifth, the church is utterly, listen to this, utterly and completely dependent upon the church planter and all of his financial support that he's raised. In other words, if the church planter decides to not do this anymore after two or three or five years because it's too hard on the family, which is usually the problem, the church almost never survives. It is completely built on one person. And so the people scatter. I could keep going, but this model is pretty terrible. It's very expensive. It's hard to even find somebody willing to do this. Since a half a million dollars is being invested by individuals and churches, well, the expectations on the church planner are like crushing. I've watched again, I've been in the city for, in Providence for 20 years but I've been, I was in North Providence and I was actually living in other parts of Providence, just part of a different church, but about 25 years. And I've watched, studied church planters uh, through the years. And I've seen again and again how this model can really burn pastors out, drain their families. And often the result is just, you know, the handful of people that, we're investing a lot into the church plan just when it doesn't work out, they're disillusioned, when it falls apart. It's just heartbreaking to watch this. I think it's just a pretty terrible model. But imagine planting churches without needing a building and without a full-time, full-salaried pastor. Imagine 15 to 20 lay people, if you want to call them that, who each have the Holy Spirit within them and are endowed with gifts from God, being trained and launching out with no overhead at all. Imagine all of the tithes and offerings going toward missions and toward local outreaches. Imagine these churches growing naturally from 15 to 30 or 40. And then maybe when they hit that point, sending out a fresh um, new church plant, sending out 15 or 20 or whatever. This is essentially how the Christian movement spread across countries, across the known world at that time. And it's also how some of the fastest growing movements on the globe today are happening. They're not all bogged up with the need to find a big building or to find a pastor crazy enough and the support financial support of a pastor. It, they're, just, they're just starting things. A group of spirit-filled Christians are just going and planting. And it's working in many places. Um, and I'm going to share a lot more about this in the days to come, just 
sharing with you some of the movements that are happening around the world and just how, how, how it works. Um, all right, good. I'm done, but uh, now it's your time because this is going to be a participatory thing. It's not just all me, right? I did my homework yesterday. Your homework is to take the next five minutes and um, you'll see these cards on your seats. Uh, for those in the back, I don't know if uh, Catherine's around. If anybody needs this, uh, she'll, she'll get you one or if you need a pen. But just take a few minutes to, to fill this out. Uh, don't be in a rush. Um, just take your time. If you're brand new with us and you're like, I don't even know if I want to be part of this crazy church, um, that's fine. You know, you can fill out whatever you want to fill out or just fill out the fun questions. Leave out your name and email if you want. Whatever you're comfortable doing. There's also, I think, new, new people cards there. You can fill one of those out if you want uh, to get on our newsletter list and just to introduce yourself. Um, so yeah, take about five minutes to do that, um, this will be the close of the service. For those who are uh, watching from home, I think there's a link or something like that that you'll see, uh, so you can have that content at home. Uh, to and I'll also send out an email this week uh, to to let you know. <laughs> Amen. Good idea, Jacob. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, love you. Thanks for listening today. Um, have a great week. Uh, after you fill this out, you, there's a basket on, the, on each of the top of the stairs. You can just toss it in. If you have any questions at all about anything, come talk to me. Email me this week. Text me, whatever. Um, I'm happy to, to help you process through all of this. Amen. <laughs>